Well, we come to Daniel chapter 3, and I suppose the first question that needs answering is, where is Daniel? For Daniel does not appear at all in this chapter. And the answer is with all things that are not specifically revealed in Scripture, either by the statement itself or by the good and necessary consequence of what we find, we don't know for sure. But very likely he was elsewhere on the business of the empire, given his immense status and responsibilities. Now, we mentioned last time that the grand theme of this book is the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. That is what the book of Daniel is all driving us towards. God alone is sovereign over everything. But the aspect of that theme that is particularly on display here in chapter 3 is that God is able to rescue his people. It may not look that way, It may not seem that God's people in their frailty and in their insignificance compared to the world have have a chance, but God is able to rescue his people, despite every appearance to the contrary. And he is bringing, of course, as we know, it is not merely the things of this world. Sometimes he is of his wisdom and determination, rescues us from the difficulties that we have, and sometimes he doesn't. But we know that ultimately God's people will surely be rescued into everlasting life. That is, God the Savior, his work for us. Now, we have no greater example than in the death of Christ. It was not God's will to answer the Lord Jesus' prayer, If there is any other way, let this cup pass before me. But of course, the rest of the prayer was not my will, but yours be done. And truly, this is our prayer as God's people. We know that God is able to rescue us. We believe that. And sometimes, he chooses not to rescue us out of the particular situation that is before us, but sometimes he is. And we see these things in the story of the fiery furnace. It's not the only things we see, by the way. You know, it's an interesting principle that we have in 1 Corinthians 3.13 that everyone's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work. Well, in a related sense, I think that we have a revelation here of various things in the light of this furnace. In the furnace, which is in the, the foreground or the background of everything in this chapter, this, there are things that are revealed by fire to us, some things that are seen only in the fire. And that's what this sermon is about. It's about what the furnace reveals. And what the furnace reveals, in some sense, is pretty unremarkable. Most of the things I'm going to say sound very, very unremarkable indeed, until you think about them. And the first one is that the king, is a list of five things. The king exalts himself. That's not terribly remarkable, is it? The world, secondly, the world conforms. That's another thing that the furnace shows us, but that's not terribly remarkable. Third, the world persecutes believers. We see that, don't we? Fourthly, that believers are faithful. Oh, that that was ordinary. It should be. Maybe it's a little less ordinary. But fifthly and finally, that God saves them. That's what the furnace reveals. That's what this whole story tells us. These somewhat unremarkable things in the greatest possible relief and all their interconnectedness and and power and depth, the king is going to exalt himself. The world is going to conform. 
And the world is going to persecute believers. Sometimes the question is whether or not the believers are faithful. But that's what they're called to do. That's what their name implies. They are the faithful. They are the believers. And they should do what their name implies to believe. Sometimes they do. And God is able to save them. And that furnace of all the things that the furnace reveals, that last is the most important and amazing. So we consider the topic, what the furnace reveals. Our first point is that the king exalts himself. In verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now that gold image was probably inspired by the dream that was in the previous chapter, this dream of the great image. Now the image itself, of course, only the head was of gold. And as you go down, the material became less precious. But Nebuchadnezzar, in his great pride, says, No, I'll make the whole thing out of gold, and it'll all be about me. I'll be the entire gold image, not just one part of it, but all of it. And, of course, what an incredible image. Not only is it entirely made of gold, it is incredibly large. Sixty cubits high. You know, a cubit being the span from here to here. Let's say that a Average man is about four cubits high. This is 60 cubits high, a gold image. An amazing thought. And what is it indicative of? What is revealed in this image? What do we see in image? We see the pride, the unchecked pride of man. And as I'll say again, we see particularly that the king is exalting himself, but the king really only stands for all that is human, all that is Man in his rebellion, man in his sin, that is what he does. He, he exalts himself. And there is no limit to how much, if we have the resources, and if we have the ability, how much sinful man in his rebellion against God is going to exalt himself. That is the image of this exaltation. But it is not, merely enough, it is not enough that that image is merely made, that it exists Not enough for it to just be seen by the common rabble. We read in verse 2, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps and administrators and governors and counselors and treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so they all come. They have to, there's got to be a lot of people there, and they must be of the highest quality. And they must be from all over the place. It's, It's a strange and sad echo, I suppose, of what will happen on the final day. You go to Revelation, and what do you see? You see before the the Lamb, before the living God, before His Christ, you see that there are people from every tribe and tongue under heaven worshiping the King, because it is not enough that those from one land worship. There must be representatives from every place, and there must be lots of them. Well, the King in his pride has this echo of that has this um, facsimile of the worship that is due to God alone, and he brings him. But even that is not enough. Even It's not enough merely that they're there to see it, but of course that they must bow down in their worship before him. A herald cried aloud to you, it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the flute, the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast 
immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Reminded how different in the end is the worship in Revelation as these people joyfully, God's people joyfully and voluntarily worship the living and true God. Well, we see the pride. We see the size of the image. We see that it is made of gold. We see that it brings people. And these people are from all over the world, all over the inhabited world, the great empire that he built, which is, by the way, God described it himself as the head of gold. It is a magnificent empire and representatives, not the common rabble, but the the leaders, the princes, the chiefs, they are brought and they are commanded to worship. That is the image of unchecked pride. That is what lurks in every human heart. Every fallen human being would desire not merely to be next to God, but would desire to be God himself and would set himself up in that way. Give a man the the resources and the authority to do it and he would do precisely as Nebuchadnezzar has done and as world history will show you from beginning to end. Inasmuch as it is within the grasp of sinful man, he will raise himself up in pride against the living God. That is a reality. And brothers and sisters, if you have not actually made an image for yourself ever, well, we're thankful for that. But there are other ways in which to display our pride and to exalt ourselves against the living God. I will just point out before we move on that God is in the business of humbling those who exalt themselves. Well, secondly... As I say, an unremarkable thing. The king exalts himself. Of course kings do that. Everyone does that. Secondly, the world conforms. You see, because that's the very unremarkable thing here. The least amazing, I think, probably the least amazing of all. In verse 7, so at the time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image. So if we were on, if we were nervous and wondering what's going to happen, if this is a moment of great tension, wondering if these people would actually do as the king commanded, we need not have been. There was no anxious moment here. They simply obey. Because that, brothers and sisters, is what the world does. It conforms itself. The world is very good at conforming. Why would it not? What reason does it have to resist that? What ability does it have to resist? Because we know the word of God says that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. From the moment that Eve had submitted herself to the serpent in the garden. That we, all of of the fallen people, all these people, we lie under the sway of the wicked one. We listen to his words, we listen to the lies of Satan, and we obey them. We conform. Now, I understand that sometimes the, the image that we get from Hollywood is not that. And I would think that it's one of the greatest PR, public relations coups in the history of the world to foist the idea on the culture today that worldly people are rebels, you know. That, that, that's, that's the idea, isn't it? We're all, you're, you're a rebel. You're rebelling against the common people. That's not true at all. Hardly the case that worldly people are rebels, I think they comply with a a uniform conformity that would make Goebbels blush. They walk around lockstep, thinking the same thoughts, speaking the same words, wearing the same clothes, in utter perfect conformity. 
That's what the world does. There's nothing remarkable about it. They're sheep. And they lie under the sway of the wicked one. Now they may be wearing the uniform of someone they'd like to think of as a rebel. Because that's the idea. Hollywood and and the the world is trying to sell them on on outward things. They may be wearing the uniform of a rebel. But they wear it like, like North Koreans. Wearing the uniform of some dictator that led a communist rebellion many years ago. They wear it with perfect uniformity and submission to the going rate of what the world tells them. And I, I, to give you a test of that, by the way, you can ask, you can, you can figure this out when you declare the gospel to someone in this world. And, and I, I'm, I would tell you that the response that you get from trying to explain the gospel will tell you that they have been catechized by this world. That they have been prepared for these very things. And the response will always include a very small, limited amount of responses that they have been programmed by Satan in this world to come from their hearts and their mouths as soon as they hear the gospel. They are in lockstep conformity, marching around like a North Korean army. It is hardly amazing that the world conforms. They're good at it. That's what they do. But thirdly, the world does not merely conform to all the lies of Satan. It also persecutes believers. That's our third point. The world persecutes believers. Therefore, in verse 8, at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the, the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, not to name names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods, nor worship the gold image which you have set up. These pagan officials are accusing Christians of not paying due regard to the state. There's no surprise there. That's no shock. That's what pagan officials do. They always have and they always will. They will accuse and persecute believers. And what we know is 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, you can be sure of it, because it is not just the satraps of ancient Babylon. It is all those who have any measure of authority, even the common people, who will turn in Christians if they can find some way to do so. Because the world, again, cannot stand those who do not conform. They can speak all they want about rebels. They don't actually tolerate them at all. And you will find out. Again, you will find out. You can test it yourself. The moment you decide not to conform to the diktats of this world and of its culture, you will suffer the opposition and persecution of those who are in authority. You can count on it. There's nothing remarkable about the world persecuting believers. Of course, it's not just the Chaldeans and their accusation, because it goes on in verse 13, the Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I set up? 
Now, if you're ready at this time, you hear the sound of the, the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I've made good. It's good. That's okay. And, and let me say that it has never been the policy of the world to just simply kill Christians willy-nilly. Those times in which this appears to be the case are very rare indeed. I do not say that such things have not happened, but that is not the policy. That is where things ended up. Generally speaking, the world has a policy simply of a minimal adherence. It has no interest in just killing us no matter what. It has been to extract an outward conformity, however token. That is what the world wants. The world does not really care what you and I think in our hearts. All the world has an interest in is making us outwardly conform, that the words coming from our mouths, the attitude of our bodies, what we do with it, so forth, those things, they want outward conformity. And if you fall down and worship, great, you're not going to be killed. You're not going to be thrown into jail. You're not going to be fined. You're not going to be fired. You're not going to be disciplined. As long as you give the world outward conformity, you will be okay. 99 times out of 100, that's the way it works. Don't forget that. Because if you think, if you think that mere survival is the objective, if you think that carrying on in the, the way that you have is the objective. If you think that the objective is to, to make some sort of compromise, then you'll consider that to be a win because the world will not kill you. The world will not carry out its threats if you give them outward conformity. But that's their policy. They will have won. Well, the threat, of course, is great, the threat of force. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There's the threat again. It's a serious one. But it goes on a little bit further this time. He says, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Now, again, it's no surprise that the king would say this because he has never seen a God yet able to do that. There are many gods represented there are many religions represented in his empire, and he's thrown many people into the furnace, or else cut people up, or else have them hung, or all the rest of the ways in which you could execute people that we have examples from the Babylonian empire. He's done that many times, and he has never yet seen anybody's God be able to save them from that. So it's not remarkable that he would say such a thing. It's not in his experience to find people whose God is able to save them. And he asks a question, then, who is that God? The question that we need to ask, the thing that I find most remarkable, not that he would say that, but that he, he's still alive after he said it. That's the amazing thing to me, brothers and sisters, that he's still alive. Because, you know, that wasn't the case with Herod in Acts 12, was it? You know, in Acts 12, 22, the people are flattering him. And, and don't forget, of course, the world is very insincere in their conformity, in their outward conformity. They're insincere in their, in their flattery to people and the leaders. But in, in Acts 12, 22, the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. That's what happens when a, a king of this world exalts himself. 
and does not give glory to God, God strikes him. And if anything, we should consider that to be the rule and anything else to be the exception. The only question is when he has thrown down the gauntlet to that extent and he says, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Why is he still alive, brothers? Why is he still breathing after this moment? It's really important that you figure that out. It's really important that we understand that because without that we will not understand what happens to us in this world. We believe that God is able, in fact, to deliver us. We believe that God is able to do as he did that day with Herod and send an angel to immediately strike him dead. And God would be well within his rights to do so. But there is a reason why Nebuchadnezzar is still breathing after he uttered those words. It must be that God, in his wisdom, has determined that his continued existence in this world will bring him glory and will in some way or another be for the good of his people. Do you see? It must be for that reason, because God is is powerful, all-powerful. And he is able to bring to justice people like Nebuchadnezzar immediately. Well, the world is going to persecute believers. That's not remarkable. If anything was remarkable in point three, it was surely that the king was still alive after he said such a thing. But thirdly, this is sadly, I suppose, the least usual of all these things. Fourthly, I mean, that believers are faithful. Isn't it sad that we can absolutely count on men to, to lift themselves up in pride? We know that. Certainly kings. We can count on the world to conform because that's what they're so good at doing. You will find the world conforming and you'll not be be disappointed if you're expecting that. And the world persecuting believers, there is nothing more common than that. That is absolutely normal. You'll find it every day in every place that you go. But sadly and strangely, here's the one that's the least reliably true, that believers are faithful. They certainly should be faithful, as I said, as part of our name. That's what we are. We're believers in the living God, and we should be faithful. Yet it doesn't always happen. Well, it's happened here. Praise God. In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That's astonishing, isn't it? We have no need to answer you. Their lives had just been threatened in the most plausible and serious way imaginable. This king with absolute dictatorial authority, and they have, we have no need of answering you, O king. Amazing, amazing expression of their faith. It says, if that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace. Believe it, king. You say it's impossible. You've never seen what I'm going to tell you. He is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Your your hand that you imagine is so omnipotent, he he will deliver us. It's an expression of their faith in the living God, who created the universe out of nothing, using only words, and he is able to deliver them out of the hand of this king. But if not, verse 18, But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, they rightly understand that it is not God's will in every single case to save them out of every trial that comes. If that were the case, Christians would never die, among other things. 
All the, all the disciples, have you thought about it? All the 11 disciples and Paul would still be with us today if it were God's will to save their, his people out of every earthly, worldly thing that challenges, threatens them, every illness, every frailty, whatever it might be. It'd all still be here. But it is not his will. In fact, Christ would not have died, as we said earlier on. But we know it was to the great glory of God And we know it was to the greatest of benefit to his people that Christ did die. And so he was put to death. And so they rightly understand it may be possible in the will of God that they'd not be rescued. Now, before we go any further, let me say, by the way, that in all the things that we say, what is being revealed by this whole fiery furnace incident? One of the things that is being revealed by fire here, the fire of this trial, is the reality of the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, if we knew nothing else, had we just been reading in the book of Daniel, we'd say we'd be very impressed with Daniel, and we'd say he's certainly a believer, and that he's got these sidekicks. We don't really know where they stand. Well, we know, we know where they stand now, don't we, brothers? We know where these three men stand, and do not forget that in the many purposes of trials, this is one of the most basic ones. It is merely to show off the reality of your faith. The reality of your faith which brings great glory to God when everyone sees that it is true. That you believe and no one can deny it. Well, no one could deny that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego truly believed the fire had revealed that for certain. But as you know, that Nebuchadnezzar was determined to see what was going to happen next. He had them bound. And he had that fire heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And the funny thing is, by heating the fire up even hotter than it normally was, it revealed a little bit more than it otherwise would have. Keep that in mind as we we go then to the fifth point, that by heating the fire even greater, there were certain things made with greater emphasis and poignancy than would otherwise be the case. Well, we think then, fifthly and finally, that the Lord saves I mentioned about this fire being furnace, this fire, this furnace being turned up more than usual. These men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Perhaps in the haste of these things, they had not removed these things, but that's that's useful. Therefore, in verse twenty-two, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, that's really important too, because if you did not know that, you might think it was a furnace, sort of like my, what's at your house, maybe, and maybe you'd think that this furnace, which heats up hot water, that you could survive there for a few minutes, and you'd wonder whether this was truly a miracle or not. But let me tell you, you don't have to wonder anymore, because the people whose job it was merely to throw them in. The fire was so great it killed them. We know this is a great fire. And we know that any God who's able to save these men is great indeed. Well, they were thrown in. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down bound into the midst of the burning fire furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. We've been talking about one unremarkable thing after another. Just a long list of things that always happened. And then something happened which he was not used to. Something that he was not expecting. He was astonished by it. He rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? Yep, true, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. 
They're loose. They had been bound. I guess the fire, the one thing the fire had done had been to loose their bonds. They're loose and they are not harmed. So he said even those men who had thrown them in were dead. That's remarkable enough, but even more remarkable, the thing that he's perhaps even more astonished about is that, look, verse 25, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. There is someone else in that furnace with him. And you know who it is. It's the Son of God. God had sent the Savior of his people to them to protect them, to save them, to be in the fire with them. One of those lends a little bit of help to understanding a verse like Revelation 1.15. It says his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. As if refined in a furnace. But it wasn't just a similitude. It wasn't just a, a likeness. Of course, we know that Christ was refined in the furnace. The wrath of God here pictured even as he was in the furnace with these, his people. And they are saved, you see. When God sends his son to save his people, they are saved. Shadrach went near the mouth of the fire furnace and said, come out of there. And they came out. And they're brought out. And the thing is, it's not just their bodies. It's not just that they're, they're alive, but they've got smoke inhalation and they, they need to be on intensive care. It's not just that their bodies are completely fine, but their clothes have all been burnt off. It's not just that they're completely fine and that their clothes are intact. It's that there's not even the scent of burning, any, the smell of a furnace on them at all. God had completely saved them. The power, and, and it's all, it's rightly summarized by the word, the fire had no power over them. Fire had no power. God, the creator of the universe, God who is the one who has, has given us fire, God who has his control over fire, says he's, the fire has no control over these people. The Lord saves them. That's what this fire revealed. It's a good thing, by the way, that we see this. We don't have to wait until the final day. We don't have to wait and see what happens when we die because we have these things in scriptures as living portraits to us to tell us that God is able to save his people out of the worst of trials. He has that power. And the power of the fire, the fire has no power over. God's greatly glorified, by the way, in their salvation. We begin to see that it's a good thing that the Lord allowed this to happen. Because Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Really? So a few minutes ago, he was saying, Who is this God who could save you? Now he says, Blessed be the God who did save you. He sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word. Now he's humbled. Once again, he's humbled. He's frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. It's an amazing thing. After this very mandatory idol worship, then he says, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made in ash heap because there is no other god who can deliver like this. Do you think that they had expected such an outcome? A couple hours ago when this was all going on. I don't know, but I doubt it. But yet God made it. So that before the law was this mandatory worship of a false god. And by the end of the chapter, by the end of the day, anyone who spoke against the true and living God would have the death penalty. Brothers, what do you say to this? 
Friends, this is our God. He is great indeed, and he is able to save us. And as we bring ourselves to application, I think that we should put our trust in this Lord. We should believe that he's truly able to save. This one, like the Son of Man, this, this angel of the Lord, capital A, he is Christ. And this picture of saving us from the fire, it could not be any more graphic, could not be any more powerful. That's what Christ did. The thing, amazingly, the salvation from the wrath of a human king, from physical destruction, that's amazing enough. But you know, spiritually, our problem went beyond that, you know. It wasn't just that, that our bodies might have been destroyed in the fire. The Lord Jesus Christ says, don't fear him who is only able to destroy the, the, the body and then can do nothing more. Fear him. I'll tell you whom you should fear. Whom after he has killed the body has power to cast you into everlasting fire. That's the fire you see that we should truly understand is the problem. That God himself burns with anger against the wicked. And God himself, yes, indeed, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, will be the judge, and he will cast sinners into the fires of hell forever. But, my friends, if you have put your faith in Christ... That fire has no power over you. That's what it says in Revelation as well. That over those, these of God's people, these, the second death has no power. The second death, which is the lake of fire, it has no power. You know why? Because that fire was extinguished for us as the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself, submitted himself to be in that furnace. To be crushed under the hand of God and to endure the fires of the wrath of God upon our sin. And for us, the fire has no power. And we ought to put our trust in him. Certainly in terms of our salvation, but really, it, I, would, I would go beyond that to say, look, if he's done this greatest of things, if he's done the greatest of things and saved us from that fire, and Christ has been in that furnace, will he not be with us in the lesser things? Will he not also demonstrate his compassion and power in saving us from many lesser evils in these things? If he has done so much to greater, he is able to do the lesser, and he is able to save us from dangers. And, and look, we have to have that caveat that the people themselves did. We have to have that caveat and say, we don't know for certain that in this particular case, at this moment in time, he will do exactly as we wish that he would. But one thing we can be absolutely certain is that our God is able to do it. And we should live as if that were true. Now, I would also say we have to have the but even if not. We are prepared. If it's not his will, we have to believe that. Again, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done because we have to understand that there no doubt those, no doubt they were praying as they were speaking to Nebuchadnezzar Please don't throw us into the fire. Please don't throw us in the fire. And, and he did, you see. All along that chain, they must have surely been praying that the Lord would help them. And there their hands are being bound. And they're being marched up to the furnace. And they're praying as they go, no doubt. And they're actually thrown into the fiery furnace. And it was God's will that they would be done in this way. God had a reason for it. And that's why we say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And you know what? I'd say this. If they had been cast into that fire, and if they had perished, 
God would still have been glorified? He really would have. We know that the power of the testimony of martyrs is very great. But we have to be understand that even if not, we will not worship these false gods. We will be faithful no matter what. And of all the things of these that I, I would wish to impart to us this day is that we must be absolutely clear about our duties before God because it is not a long list like this. At the end of the day, God asks us to be faithful and to leave the outcomes to him. That's the situation with these people. That's the situation with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it must be with us. If you really think that the responsibility to sort everything out, to fix everything, and to save yourself, if it all is upon you, if all that rests upon you, you will surely be crushed under that load. It will be a a crushing and terrible load to carry. And if you think that it must be through craft, through, through maneuvering, and, and, and working in, in various ways to ensure some sort of outcome, then you will also be stuck in some dark, sticky morass that you'll not easily extricate yourself from, as with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had they gone down that road. But no, all they said is, we're not going to serve your gods. I don't know what God's going to do. I know he's able to save us, but we're not going to serve your gods. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to conform to your pagan worship. And your unlawful commands. And they put themselves in the hand of God. And they did the one thing that they must do. Which is faithful. To be faithful. That my beloved. Is the only measure that we have before God. It is not the outcome. He does not hold us accountable for what happens. What he holds us accountable for is faithfulness. You look through those letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And you will see in each and every time. It is faithfulness that is commended. The outcomes, believe it or not, are barely even mentioned. I don't know if they are mentioned. It doesn't say about, well, it doesn't commend people for building churches. It doesn't commend people for changing empires or for laws or for any of these things. Schools. It doesn't say that. What is commended is faithfulness to God and his word. And that is what we'll be judged concerning. Let us be very clear about that. All these things are summarized in Christ's exhortation to Smyrna in Revelation 2.10. Be faithful unto death. And that is it. Your job, your duty, is to be faithful. And God will take care of the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it sounds so wonderfully clear. In the clear light of day, as we read your word and we look back and the centuries and millennia to the situation of the fiery furnace. Well, Lord, how we pray that it would be equally clear when in the subtleties of Satan and the fiery furnaces of the trials that you and your sovereignty bring to us today, that we would do likewise. That our faith that you are able to save your people would be absolutely clear. We would not be surprised when the world persecutes us. We would not be surprised when the world goes along with these things. Lord, oh, how we pray that the world would be surprised when they see your people being faithful and not, not willing to conform to what is false and to line worship that this world has. How we pray, Lord, that we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, come what may, and that at the end of all things, in eternity, we would be found to be those who are faithful to you. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.